I trust dialogue, and 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 I feel like that that's that's enough of a limitation, or those those are enough parameters for a director to take to take the words that the people are are having in the conversation. You know, the conversation is what what steers it. You know. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler, and this is Tony Russo, and you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author Andrew Heller. Andrew has written three young adult fiction novels, and he recently published two full-length plays in a collection called A Bunch of Ellipses. His plays, while humorous and sarcastic at times, look at family relationships, life and death, love and loss. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Um, we're always glad to have you back on the on the podcast. Um, and I would just like to say, if I might, um, I think I get to take credit for the title of this collection. I think you do. I think you do. In fact, I know you do. <laughs> because um, when so. Not to steal your thunder, but you had these plays on you had these plays on your computer I'd, for yep for a while. I'd worked on uh, the f- first one uh, since I lived in Nashville, which was back in early two thousands. Is when I started the play, and, then and that's eighty six proof. Yep, that's eighty six proof. And I and I worked on that one while I was in Nashville. Did a draft of it there. It wasn't called eighty six proof then. I forget what it was called. I think coconut cake or something like that. And then I um, moved into the area now here in Salisbury and I, and I did some more work on the play. I worked with a, a small local theater and did a little reading of it there. And then I put it away for a while and I brought it back and did it again at the university, not as a stage thing, but as a, as a reading and a mm-hmm. workshop kind of thing. And I workshopped it with some students and got it into a de- better place. And then I put it away again. Um, and I did the same with, with Last Night I Flew with Angels. That one started out as a poem that I wrote when my, when my grandmother passed away. And it was dealing with grief and that sort of thing. And I continued work on that one. Just a little here, a little there, expanded it. And I workshopped it in that same class that I worked 86 Proof. And it, it grew into a longer play. And then I put them both away. And then I would revisit them. And then I was in a position of, of working on the fourth of my series of the Samuel Smythe series. And I was just stuck and just beating myself, not able to get anywhere. And and someone had suggested, why don't you pick up some other writing? Why don't you go write something else or pick up something else that you've done and look at that for a while? So I started looking at that and I started doing some little tweaks and doing some little edits and did a little bit of other things. And then lo and behold, someone says, why don't you just publish it? Because I was like, hey, Andrew, you know how you work in a place where we have a machine that makes books and... (laughs) If you have material that we could just put in a book, we could do that. It's like, what? I can do that? Yeah. Oh, so I did. And so they became released and um and and there you are. Yeah. And it was funny because as we were as I was laying out the the two plays in, in book format for Andrew, um, if there's one thing that I can say about Andrew, his <laughs> favorite punctuation mark oh, I, I is the ellipses. Yes. He I think he I think you and the ellipses have some kind of like long term love affair. We are one. And so I jokingly said, Andrew was like, I don't know what the title's going to be. And I was like, well, you know, this is just a bunch of ellipses. And he laughed and he was like, oh my God, there's my title. Yep. And it's, and it's perfect because ellipses are my way when I'm typing and I'm, what am I going to say next? Dot, dot, dot. That's what I do. And my finger just instantly goes there, dot, dot, dot. And then I keep typing. And it's kind of like, oh, what's next? What's next? And that was very much, I think, what what 
that title spoke to me with these two plays because both of these plays leave you right. at the end with a feeling of, ah, what's next? What's going to happen next? Where do we go from here? Well, I want to make a comment and then ask a question. The comment is, the on the on the ellipses thing, I ha- while you were talking, I came up with this weird, long conspiracy theory <laughs> that what appeals to you about ellipses is your playwriterness. It's like, okay, this is what I have to say, and now whoever's reading or saying it, throw a little spice on that, will you? <laughs> yeah, like deal with this. Ponderous. So I'm willing to be wrong about that. I mean, I, there, there could be truth in that, Tony. <laughs> but, but the question is, when you're talking about workshopping plays, I don't know what that is. Um, so can you just kind of describe that process and talk about how you can use that to improve your play? It's it's letting other voices read the characters and, and letting them come alive. And as they're starting to, I, I would... The way I workshopped, I, I started with, with 86 Proof because it was the most complete of the plays. Mm. And, and I cast it with the students that were there. And we read through. I described who the characters were and what they were. And as we read... My my directing style is to ask the actor a whole lot of questions to, to to get them to try to think about the words and and I feel like everything comes from the text anyway because you don't get a whole lot of background other than what's in the text for a play right so that you have to base a character completely on what the what words they say and so these actors are developing who these people are thinking about who these people are and I'd start asking them what their motivations are why well why do you think this person says this why do you think they did this well if that you're not you're having a hard time saying those words why are you having a hard time what do you think they're trying to say and so trying to get through those aspects and they'd give you feedback and we kind of work through and I listen and I hear what's working what's not working I'd go home and I'd write some more bring it back the next day and say all right we're going to work on this scene again let's hear the scene again and see where see where we are let's see how Things have changed. Let's see what what motivations happen. What what does the conversation sound like now when these two people are are, are speaking? That's fascinating, and because it also kind of gives you not just the limitations, but also the extra strengths of whichever actor you happen to choose for whichever part. Oh sure, oh sure. I mean that can that can work to your benefit, or it can very much not work to yeah. your benefit. I I, I was lucky. Um, with with the group of students that I had, that they were they were a wonderful group, and and I knew them, and they they knew me, and so I think developing the relationship that we had, they they understood where I was going in in many respects, and I was able to pull out of them as a director some of the directions I wanted to go, some of the things I was trying to get them to say, and if I couldn't get it, then clearly it was because my words weren't saying it, mm-hmm. so I had to change those words to get across what it was I needed to get across. No, I, and I think one of the things that is interesting, I think, for a play, looking at things from from a playwright side, like I know when I'm writing nonfiction that there are parts of me that bleed in, and I can see when parts of me bleed in, you know. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, when you're doing a play, do you funnel into, do you bleed into everyone, or sometimes is it like, is there one character that is sort of driving the voice of the thing that you're trying to say? That. Probably some of all of that, right? And, and and also, I think it depends on on the play. I think certainly there are there are characters when the play that that I would like to feel like that I identify with more. But it's often like when you watch a show and 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 you know, I'll use like Bob's Burgers for example. I always think I want to be Louise. I'm Louise. That's the girl with the bunny ears. But yeah, probably I'm more a Linda when you really think about it. I'm more like the mom, in that right? Show. You know, as as you look at it. So there's the character that I want to identify with, and then there's the character that probably is really more my voice mm-hmm. that, that comes out of it. But all of them have a little bit. But then as you really start to develop and they 
take that life and you start to hear who these people are and start to know who these people are, I hear different voices in my head. I know that sounds crazy, but I am a little crazy. <laughs> but, I, but I hear the voices a little bit differently in my head, and I hear the conversations in my head, and I have the conversations in my head. So they all become, become very different people. When you're working as just the author, um, I, just, I would like to just know about this dynamic. Okay, so you're the author, and the director isn't getting what he wants. How often does the director turn to you and say, can you fix this? Because I can't. Is that something that – is there any kind of collaboration between the director and the author that way when they're different people? That, that has happened. I, I worked on a, on a play when I was in grad school. I stage managed this show, and it was an, it was an original work. Um, and we had the author who was, who was working on the show with us, and the director at times would say – I can't get this scene to happen. I need more here or I need less over here. I need more from this character because this character is not getting us through this next place, no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. And then the the playwright would go back and do some rewrites. Or sometimes it's the playwright who's watching the rehearsal and going, oh, I'm not getting what I thought I would get when I put these words down. Let me let me try getting it, getting it across this way. So yeah, there has to be that back and forth. I would imagine there's... Um I don't want to say a loss of control, but you know, when when you write a play and then they say and you have in your mind who the characters are, you know, how the play is supposed to feel, you know, it's where it's supposed to hit hard and where it's supposed to be funny and all those things and then you turn that work over to complete strangers to both direct it and stage manage it and design the sets and then pick the people who are going to do that and then you sort of are are as the playwright are removed from the situation, I would imagine that that would be very, that I don't want to say it's like a loss of control, but to watch someone completely interpret what you had in a very concrete sure, way would sure. be sort of unnerving. And, and I think that goes across a broad spectrum. I mean, look at Shakespeare and I mean, certainly when you modernize Shakespeare, put set Romeo and Juliet on the border of Mexico and the United States or something like that. That's not what Shakespeare intended. Right. You know, and he'd be like, what are you doing with my play? That's not what I meant. You know, and so though there's that that happens. Um, but that's kind of to be expected. But then you have like like uh, Edward Albee, who has used to have a fit if anyone tweaked his play, even in the slightest. You're but then he died. Have, yeah, but then he died. Um, but <laughs> I think it's still in his is, is still in his estate that you can't you can't do certain things with with them. Um so some playwrights are very controlling about their work and they put that in there. But I, I really, maybe because I'm a director, I, I see the need for interpretation or I see the need for a different voice or sometimes the words don't translate quite the same. Mm. I did um, a production of Harold Penter's The Lover when I was in, in Mississippi and it's a 1960s kind of fun little comedy about you know, an older married couple who are kind of bored with their sex life. So they play these little games and she refers to him as his, as her lover. And he refers to her as his whore. Well, you know, that's a very different, different kind of way of looking at it in the context of that was in the, in the late nineties, but even, I mean, especially today referring to, to my significant other as my whore isn't going to really go over very well. And so I put a much more darker, kind of twist on it. And mm. I really looked at these words and and we kind of decided, I, I think the sentence really in this day and age comes across this way. Now, 
a colleague of mine came and watched the show and blasted me on how wrong I was about it because it was not the fun little comedy that he remembered it to be. And mm-hmm. I said, well, none of that's funny anymore. <laughs> it's just not. Welcome to several decades later. <laughs> well, to, to tie that together also with the Shakespeare thing, I actually was just listening to uh, a podcast about Don Giovanni. And I didn't know this, and it must happen to everything, and now this confirmed. There are cliques, cliques of directors, like, I direct this this way, and I leave this scene oh, in yeah. this way, and I make the I make the singing this way. Like, sometimes uh, in Don Giovanni, the director chooses whether the women are raped or cheating. Like, yeah, yeah. And they don't change any of the words. It's just with stage direction and tone, they go from sexual assault— to oh, sexual sure. aggressors, depending upon the director. Well, now that's the beauty of, of directing. That's the beauty of, of, of staging something. Because it just, just by virtue of proximity, where you stick to people yeah. on stage, you can change an entire dialogue just by people standing next to each other or by people standing across the stage. The entire, the entire aspect or the, the whole context of what's taking place changes. And that's what's weird to me, and I'd like you to talk about this a little bit, is the idea of a director making a statement. Especially in in a play that they haven't written, you know, like this is this is what I've decided. Because even if you're the author, it's like being the second in command. Like the the director is the captain. Words yeah, last I, words I think final. There's, there's a release by the author when they put a play out there, though. I, I really feel like that that an author has to let that go. I mean, hmm. when you when you read a book, you just don't get to sit there and, and see what a. I mean, a director doesn't take the book, but the the individual who's reading the book right. reads the book. And they put the story in their head. They decide what the people look like. They decide what the voices are. They decide how the words come out. So, I mean, you you always lose a little bit of control when you're an author and you let someone else read your work because mm-hmm. you cannot control how someone else interprets it unless you really sit there and watch them and you rework things to get the interpretation that you want out of it. Mm. Um, but I, I did The Marriage of Bet and Boo by Christopher Durang, and I put a huge concept on that show and changed a lot of things, dressed the folks up as circus freaks rather than just as regular people, because I felt like that's, that's, that's what the show spoke to, and, mm. I, and I, I, I felt it needed that concept. You are listening to So What's Your Story on WSDL 90.7 Rhythm and News. And we're speaking with Andrew Heller about his latest book, a collection of plays called A Bunch of Ellipses. Remember, you can find this and all of our shows on SoWhatYourStoryPodcast.com. We also have a live monthly event where we tell stories live at the Brick Room in Salisbury. And you can find more information on that on DestinationDelmarva.com slash one true thing. All right, let's go back to the show. But I think one of the things that comes across for for me when I'm listening to you talk and I'm watching your hands go. I know, as I you can't talk, talk without my you know, hands. <laughs> I think like one of the things that I think is so special about what your writing is and, and how you approach it is that you have this absolute creativity with everything that you do. You know, and I just felt like when I was reading the plays that were in this collection, a bunch of ellipses, like I could, especially in DJ, the one of the characters, there's primarily two characters in Last Night I Flew with Angels. And um, there's a character, DJ, and um, she, there were scenes that you, that you read, and I was like, oh my gosh, like I can, I can hear your voice and I could see the creativity that you pulled into that. At the same time, 
that story is is fairly sad and there's it's a very profound story but you handle it with this creativity and this playfulness that allows i think the points the the harder points of that story to kind of come through um and i don't think i have a question in that so much as i just have like that has sort of been like what i observed and i think the character DJ drove it home for me the most with you. She's, she's a woman who's dying, yet she is probably filled with more life than anyone you could ever imagine. And and she's she's I think she's she's a lovely a lovely character. Oh, she's you know, really she, funny. She's, she's fun. She's delightful. She's sad. She's more insightful than she'll she'll let you know. She's um, very real, and I mm-hmm. think that where some like in some of the other plays, you can watch some of the characters be guarded. Whereas DJ in those Rachel in those in scenes, six proof is yeah, is very guarded. There is a wall around her like nobody's business. But you see no such wall with DJ, right. and I think that it speaks to. I mean, obviously, you're able to write very versatile, very different characters and bring them to life on the page. But I just thought it was a really it to me that was sort of representative of how of you. I mean, I watch you handle very deep, profound things in your life, but you always sort of find a way to put humor on them or to try to find the better parts of those darker things. It's better to laugh. <laughs> it's just, why be sad? <laughs> so do you think the force of your personality, how much do you think the force of your personality carries through? To go back to what we were talking about, about directors making choices, do you think that the force of the author's voice can limit the director's choices. And do you think authors know that? And do you think that they exploit that? Or do Um, you? Yeah, sort of. I I think so. I, I think there, there are different ways that authors try to try to do that or playwrights try to do Mm -hmm. that. I think certainly, um, Tennessee Williams was so specific about stage directions or stage setting that really kind of, puts parameters on what you are able to do with something. And I mm-hmm. think that, that your words and, and how people say things and, and when people are doing things, how you set up a scene, who's in the scene. And certainly, like I said, the words, the language that these people are using are the parameters that, that you are able to give. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only so many parameters you can give. I mean, you can, you can put in stage directions. You can have different aspects that, that you put in there to help limit that. Um, I trust dialogue and, and, and I feel like that that's, that's enough of a limitation or those, those are enough parameters for a director to take, to take the words that the people are, are having in the conversation. You know, the conversation is what, what steers it, you know? So do you think that as a, as a, as a writer director, as a playwright director, do you think that you want to give anyone who else who directs something you've written, the kind of freedom that you would like when you're choosing a play to put on? I would be certainly curious. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I really do. I, I may not like it at the end, mm-hmm. but you know that's that's okay too. But you know, you you're know? leaving that space. You're leaving. Yeah. you're leaving the space yep. as opposed to someone it's who theirs. tries to lock it down. It's theirs. I mean, if they wanted to ask my opinion and I could tell them, or if I were to see it before they were to do it and they were to want me to know what I thought was right or wrong, I don't know how much I would want to give because I do feel like once it's there, it's. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. I, I think that comes from directing too, because there's that aspect. When you direct a play, opening night, you're done. Mm. 
you get your paycheck, you go yeah. home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> then it's the stage manager show, and then they're the ones who have to keep it going. You know, Directors don't go. I mean, they can go watch the show later on, but mm-hmm. they don't go three years later if the show's still running three years and, and do those things. That's the stage manager who runs it at that point. You know, um, I've been increasingly interested about all of the director's choices and how they, you know, from from casting to mm. to 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 the actual performance and how how much they can add and also how easily they can absolutely ruin a play by just just one bad choice. Oh, one bad choice. And you can't, can't have good it. enough actors. One bad choice or one bad actor or yeah, it 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 can completely take something away or or change something um and you can scramble to try to try to fix things. I, I did a show, but sometimes you can make it work to your advantage. I, I did a show called The Colored Museum uh, when I was in Orlando, and the producer insisted that this lady friend of his was in the show. So you had to do it because he's the one foot in the bill. So you put her in there. She was terrible, 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 terrible. But you could put her in parts that it was okay she was terrible, and you could accentuate how bad she was to make it look purposeful. Mm. So you kind of kind of had to go with it. But that was a director's choice. The poor playwright had nothing to do right. with it. I mean, he was helpless. He wasn't there. So, you know. So if you had to pick, um, if someone were to pick up a bunch of ellipses and decide that they were going to put on one of these plays, 86 Proof with the family dynamics or Last Night I Flew with Angels with the two women and and their relationship, which would you prefer and why? Oh, wow. Wow. Um, That's a hard question. That is really a difficult question. I know. I just sat here and thought of it. I was just (laughs) like, I can't wait. really difficult. I can't wait to needle Um, you with this one. Eighty-six proof, I think, would be more difficult to stage. Um, I mean, it's at a table. Just because? Well, it's at a table. It's in a living room. There's the <laughs> kitchen. There's the table. There's there's the living room. Um, but it, it can be kind of mishmashed. I mean, there, there, there's a there's an actual house set kind of thing that you got to build, like a sitcom mm. living well, room. But that's a, that's exactly it's what I was much, thinking. Much what it is? Like a sitcom see, living room. When you see people you know, all sitting around. Three quarters, yeah, of yeah, three quarters of the yeah. table. Three quarters of the table. Nobody's sitting on my side yeah. of the table. Yeah. But see, as a director, I never do that. I will have people's backs to the audience because I'm I'm very much a, a reality kind of person. Oh. You know, I I, which I like to stage. I don't like proscenium kind of things. I love thrust or or in or theater in the round. I I just I like realism mm. or hyper realism. I guess guess really would would be where that goes. Um, so 86 proof for the challenges and the complexity of, cause there's so many long monologues in that one, the complexity of those characters. I think that would be a fun one to watch to see what they did with it. Um, last night I flew with angels is, is an easier one. DJ's a hard character to nail at least to get the voice that's in my head. Mm-hmm. So that would be the harder one, I guess for me to watch because I think I would constantly be critical of your, you're, you're not saying that right. Yeah. You could produce eighty six proof. Are you familiar with Schenectady, New York? Yeah, yeah. Just get the, <laughs> just get yourself a MacArthur Grant, and we can all sit around in the middle of it. Well, what's great about that one is just about anyone could say, "Oh yeah, that's my family." You know? yeah. <laughs> 
so now that you've got these, have you have you considered trying to produce them in a in a bigger way? Is that is that on the target, or is this something you just wanted to have it's, out? I mean, I wouldn't say no, but right now it'd be like. I could go market my books. I could go market my next book. I could go try to market these plays, or I could move furniture at Saltwater today. You know, right. and, and well, actually, Andrew and I had talked a little bit about maybe doing um, sort of a, a recorded sort of version of them. Mm. Um, you know, like like not like an old timey radio show, but not necessarily like a podcast, like but a like you know, like a yeah. radio play. Like you know, there have been podcasts that have you know kind of they're done very like popular, a, you know, very you oh, know yeah, fiction based yeah. podcasts, and, I, and I both think, of them could lend themselves themselves to that. I yeah. I, I feel like I, I I know last night I flew with angels could because there's no set change really. It's just it's it's straightforward and and the set. And the scenery that is there, while while they can be important components of the play, because I do I do feel like scenery is 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 a or or the technical elements of a play are very much components of a play that the designers get to put onto it, because um, you do need to have those visuals a lot of times. But but as a radio play, since last night is I flew with angels is so minimalistic, mm. I think it would really lend itself because it is about those two voices and it is about those two conversations, those conversations that those two women are having. Now, do you worry about things like you, when you write a play that you don't conceive of as a radio play at first, are there difficulties with like sounds? Like what is, what is going on in the background? What is the, what is the music like? When he picks up the coffee cup, should we hear it? You know, what what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, ambient ambient sounds ambient noise you would need you do for if it were a radio play? To, to, I, I think to you keep would, people moving right, through it, you would need more of that for eighty six proof because there are more things that they do. Mm. Um, there's there the scene the, that play opens with with the father falling down the stairs. You know, so you've got, that would be great. You've got. You got you got to have those those kinds of things, you know. Mm-hmm. There's 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 a lot of back and forth. They are eating. There's there's a lot of drinking that goes on in the play. Um, there's cooking that goes on in the play. Those sorts of things. Uh, so so there, I, I think there's more ambient needs for that. Um, last night I flew with angels. Just has the water. Hospice. Yeah, it's in a hospice center, like in a little outdoor nice area that you could go. And there's maybe a little fountain or a water thing there. The sound of water could be there occasionally. You could have some birds more as like a scene change kind of thing. I mm-hmm. think you could do that kind of ambient ambient stuff. But um, I, I think the first one I'd highlight more with music, really. Mm. So um, what do you do? What you what you were saying, you have uh, a fourth Samuel Smythe in the works. How How is that coming along? It is primarily done. It's just... Fixing what's wrong, mm. finishing that story, and 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 kind of fixing those those broken parts of of my voice that I'm trying to get. Yeah, because I think there. you had said earlier, you know, you, yeah. you feel like you've lost some of the voice that you had for the narrator in that piece. Yes, yes, I, and I, that's got to be hard. That that is that is a difficult a difficult thing when you when you lose. Um, yeah, when you when you lose your voice with the story and the story is no longer familiar to you, it's it's like someone else is telling you what happened and like that sounds vaguely familiar because it was my experience, but 
it's not really what happened. You know, it's a whole different perspective that's coming at you. And and yeah, it throws you out of it. Do you find that, you know, because part of the reason why we did the plays was kind of almost like and in, in put them together in a collection and publish them is kind of, you know, to give you kind of a shot in the arm. Yeah, kind of yeah and it did. Yeah. But do you think that like, um, you know, that working on something else maybe will help you find your way back? It, it absolutely that? will. It absolutely will. And it actually helped me find my way into a few other things, um, which is which is nice. I've got, I've got another book that I'm working on, and um, I, I pulled another play out of the drawer that I was working on that may not stay a play. It might turn into a novel. Mm. Um, it might need some other things to it. But um, it did, and, it, and it's got me back to... I have Samuel Smythe open on my computer now rather than right. <laughs> hiding from me. So I'm back to working on that and back to back to playing that and back to trying to put that back into some semblance of an order. So appropriately, your uh, a bunch of ellipses is your Barton Fink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stephanie, now it's part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast with us. It was great. Thank you for having me. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.